0: Welcome to our latest edition of The Third Wheel, a podcast by Herbert Smith Freehills on all things ESG. I'm Mel Debenham, a partner in our Perth office, and I practice across environment planning, heritage, native title regulation, um, principally in Australia. In this episode, we're going to focus on a particular um, interest area from a decarbonisation perspective, batteries and I'm delighted to be joined by an expert team from Neo Metals today. Neo Metals is an emerging and sustainable producer of battery materials. I have Jeremy McManus, GM Commercial and Investor Relations here. Um, Jeremy has many years experience in the resources and technology materials sectors. An envious CV, I must say, having held previous roles in corporate finance and funding advisory, in the investment banking and accounting sectors. Welcome, Jeremy. Thanks, Mel. And also, Anel Javert, Metal's ESG Manager, a sustainability professional with experience working nationally and internationally in a range of industries, including mining, transport, and engineering. Anel is also a subject matter expert for the Mineral Resources Institute of WA's College Advisory Committee. And personally, I had the pleasure of working with Anel before in past roles in the environment place. So I'm really pleased that you've agreed to join us on the pod today. Thanks, Mel, and thanks for having us. Today, we'll be having a chat about the global and local transition to clean energy, energy storage, and of course, the battery value chain. But before we get started, um, we usually like to start the podcast with a personal reflection on ESG and why it's important
1: to you. Would you like to kick us off, Anel? Um, Sure. Why not? So uh, ESG for me is best summed up in a quote I read somewhere along the line, and it goes something like this. ESG measures how companies make money, not how much money companies make. So, for me, ESG holds companies um, accountable for their activities, their products, and then in general, the way they do business. Personally, I want to know where um, I invest my money, whether it's a product or shares that I buy, that the companies are good, ethical companies, and aspire or do good and look after people, society, and the planet. I mean, we live in an internet interconnected world, right? Mm. And as such, the ES and G pillars are all important and they should all work together to ensure companies do achieve sustainable outcomes. Um, As you mentioned, my background and my passion lies mostly with the environment pillar, but as my career has grown and I've worked on projects globally and in various jurisdictions, it's become more and more clear that You just can't separate the pillars from each other and you can't emphasise one over the other. I mean, they're connected, right? That's exactly right. So to me, ESG is a journey without an M and there is always room for improvement.
0: Jeremy, any observations on the ESG journey?
2: Uh, Look, Yeah, for me, ESG, it's not a... It's a new acronym, but it's not a new concept. It's possibly just historically not been reported that well. So ESG for me is really about companies disclosing clearly what they are doing or possibly not doing with regards to just reducing negative impact to people and planet. And then for near metals, it's particularly important with my near metals hat on because, you know, it's very much core business in terms of of what we do. We don't have carbon-intensive operations that we need to put slick lexicons around to make them look cleaner. It's very much more what we do, recycling and, and materials recovery. So yeah, it's an exciting space and we're getting busier and busier reporting towards it, but also setting targets and making clear what our aspirations are.
0: That was a great uh, segue, Jeremy. And Maybe we can set the scene a little bit further at NeoMetals. Can you tell us a bit about the company's area of focus?
2: Yeah, can do. So, yeah, you know, I think you introduced it um, along with a very generous, generous introduction for myself in that we're a sustainable producer of battery materials. We're targeting feedstocks from, from sources that have already been mined by someone else, and then we're applying our own green technologies, so recovery, recycling or, you know, value-adding to process minerals into materials. And so then those technologies are spawning a range of different projects and we've got partners co-funding those. You know, so the company's headquartered here in West Perth, 40 odd people were listed, primary listing on the ASX, recent secondary listing on AIM, and then also on a bunch of German bosses and on the pink sheets in the United States. And you know, really we came from mining roots. Some time ago, we had some execution success at Mount Marion, which was a an upstream lithium mine. We exited that project pretty successfully and you know grew a big balance sheet so we returned a bunch of money to shareholders the balance that's left is supporting our growth projects which are these very esg centric projects that we have and so yeah the focus is no longer on mining but rather commercializing these three technologies and you look i'll taper off but essentially the key one is about recycling lithium batteries got a big partner we're doing work with mercedes and an american company called stelco amongst others Secondarily, another European project, you know, it's domiciled in Scandinavia. We're looking to pull vanadium out of steel waste. So that's a very green project where we're looking to sequester CO2 as well as generating, you know, vanadium, which is a critical mineral. And then the the last core project is all to do with upgrading lithium into lithium chemicals, but without the reagents, which have a very big CO2 footprint. So all utilising homegrown technologies.
0: Really exciting, Um, and you you mentioned Vanadium. I've got some questions about Vanadium, but maybe we'll look back to those a little later. And Al, I mentioned you've joined Metals earlier this year as their ESG manager. It's a title we're seeing more, as ESG is explicitly folded into core business strategy and organisations are looking for that deeper level of expertise to grapple with ESG challenges and opportunities. Can you share the approach taken by Neo Metals? And I guess what I'm really asking for is what is a typical day in the life of an ESG manager? Are there any learnings you'd be happy to share with our listeners?
1: Um, sure. I mean, what is a typical day? There's no such thing as a typical day in ESG. <laughs> I, knew you'd say that. I mean, ESG covers such a broad range of topics. So every day is a bit different. It just depends on. Um, what I'm working on at that specific point in time or which business unit I'm working with. Um, at Neo Metals, we've developed a sustainability strategy and it considers all our ESG challenges and opportunities and you know that what we might face as a company and then where we have to place our focus going forward. But I'm fortunate, right? I mean, sustainability for Neo Metals is relatively easy. I mean, our whole business strategy is centred around sustainability, greener battery materials, and the concept of circular economy. But with increasing demand for regulatory oversight for ESG disclosures, um, especially in Europe and North America, as Jeremy said, where the majority of our projects are, you now I must be across all the requirements that um, any new standards or regulations or EU directives that come out Um, and it's catching up on what's been happening in this space is always very interesting but um, there's something new every day so it just you know it it can take some time but because it's so interesting it just it makes the day just go so much faster I guess. Um, Other days I would work with the various business units um, on how to improve our sustainability performance or where we can make improvements, um, whether it's working on life cycle assessments to identify some of our more environmental hotspots or project designs, um, you know, what projects we need to look at and if and how these projects fit into our business and sustainability strategies. As for learnings, Mm. I just say, You don't go down that rabbit hole because you never know what you might find at the end of it. There is so much innovation and forward thinking out there at the moment that there may just be that opportunity or solution that you need for a particular problem.
0: I have um, a vision of Anel as an octopus at the moment um, to be successful as an ESG manager, you know, really needing to have um, that span across all aspects of a business, both both in terms of what the business is doing but where. Um, it's very interesting. Maybe as a part two, Jeremy, um, you've had broad experiences prior to Neo Metals, um, but obviously a, a role with a different focus to Anel. Can you talk us through how ESG is perhaps taking up increased real estate within your role, the roles like yours, in, and the broader general management team?
2: Yeah, for sure. And look, it has taken up a lot of real estate prior to it and I'm very grateful for her joining us because myself and the CFO were responsible for leading the charge originally, so we're up to our third sustainability report, the first two you know, we put together uh, ourselves, so that that was a big learning exercise. But not not so difficult in as it was what we were doing, as you know, more than what we were aspiring to do. And then, yeah, we're just seeing more and more time dedicated to this subject. Near metals is listed. You know, the other part of my role, I'm still involved in ESG quite heavily, but the other part of my role is about communicating what we do to an investment community. And having listed in London, a lot of those investors are interested in what we're doing specifically as it relates to ESG. So, yeah, it's occupying a lot of time. And even at a board level, you're seeing directors, that, you know, at least amongst a group, they're needing to be a skill set, you know, that reflects the E, the S and the G. And the, the S and the G have always been there. And I think the E has too, but its mm. it's got more prominence now.
0: Yeah, and certainly if, if ESG um, considerations aren't being considered actively by the board and with that skill set, um, you know, you'd be open to risk and, and also missing a trick in terms of the opportunities that can deliver. Absolutely. Um, perhaps let's let's um, pivot and focus in a little bit more on batteries. So we've discussed Neometal's business, which does span the battery value chain including minerals and advanced materials relevant to energy storage, um, being lithium and obviously EVs. Now, compared to the rest of the world, um, wouldn't necessarily describe Australia as an early embracer of EVs. Um, Obviously, the tyranny of distance plays a part in that, but but also um, a bit of a patchy policy setting up until now. That position is changing. Thinking um, close to home to begin with the WA government's announcement last year of Australia's longest EV charging network to be installed by early 2024, which will traverse much of the state, um, is obviously a great initiative and a necessary initiative. Chris Bowen, Australia's new Minister for Climate Change and Energy, has previously said in the media he loves driving his new Tesla but has to resort to an ordinary power outlet to charge up a Parliament House in Canberra. So um, there's lots of work to be done in the infrastructure space. Minister Bowen's recent National Press Club uh, address also foreshadowed a number of new pieces of legislation relevant to batteries and EVs uh, that are intended to be introduced when Parliament resumes. This includes an EV tax cut retrospectively from 1st of July, the driving the nation plan of an EV fast charger, no more standard outlets for for Minister Bowen, uh, once every 150 kilometres on the nation's highways, as well as conversion of the Commonwealth fleet to 75% no emissions vehicles. From the outside looking in, I I see a lot of ambition here, but Jeremy and Al, is this the national policy framework Australia has been waiting for? Was this music to your ears or are there still some pretty obvious gaps?
1: I'd say it's a great start. Um, Australia has been lagging in the space and there's much more to do. Um, For example, in June, the representatives of the EU agreed to ban new internal combustion engine cars, or rather cars powered by petrol Petrol. and diesel um, from 2035. So from 2035 in Europe, all new cars must emit zero CO2 emissions. Now, as you said, in Australia, range anxiety and the price of electric vehicles um, over, let's call it a normal car, are still hurdles to overcome before we can set any such targets.
2: Yeah, look, and I mean, this, what you just introduced, you know, makes me think of a lot of different things, but on policy actions, obviously, speak louder than words. So it's pretty promising that there's change afoot because Australia's been a laggard, you know, on many fronts, particularly with AV. And, you know, what we've done as a business, I guess we have been driven in part by policy. Most of our projects are domicile. In Europe or elsewhere out of Australia and part of that is because of big populations and neighbours and trading opportunities in Europe for example but the other piece is is policy that's been done well so you know there's a lot of things from you know carrots and sticks for you know incentives to adopt charging infrastructure etc when you're talking about cars but equally the car manufacturers there's a big stick there if they don't get down to a certain CO2 Mission level, there's huge fines, billions, tens of billions of euro in fines. And so they've been forced to manufacture more EVs, whether it be hybrid or all electric. And that's really forced the issue in Europe. So, you know, in time when adoption starts increasing in Australia, some of those policy leaders are going to be critical. I think at the moment we need to walk before we can run. So there's some basic stuff, like if you want to travel north. You can't, you know, you, you can't wait for a day to charge your car out of 240 volts. But um, you know, an EV is one thing though as well. I think the stat was it's about 15% of global emissions come from EV, and everyone's mm-hmm. enamored with the concept of Teslas and everything's about green cars, but the construction industry is contributing somewhere closer to 40%. So all the materials that you need for construction are a big deal with carbon emissions. And so one of the other – I mean, it's all battery materials for near metals. but one of the other things we're doing is one of the potential partners in Stelco. The reason we're partnering with them is because they're looking to transition their steel business away from blast furnace to EAF, which has less uh, to footprint for a given tonne of steel produced, and they're using – end-of-life vehicles as their scrap source and with those vehicles increasingly will be more lithium batteries so that's how we intend to partner with them and then our vanadium recovery project one of the byproducts or our co-products you know is being used by a pretty innovative Finnish company that's looking to make a replacement cement a binder you know that doesn't have that same co2 footprint so lots of different avenues and, and ev is just one of them
0: I think your comments about policy done well are really important, right, because without a a good policy setting, um, it it has impacts on investment confidence, which which is exactly what we need um, to incentivise the private sector to, to actually participate in this part of the economy, um, but also your point around needing to take that holistic approach I think is really important. Um, it, it's not just about EVs, obviously. It's everything that goes into the making of the vehicle and perhaps less vehicles um, all up as well wouldn't be a bad thing. Uh, the 2030 ambition outlined in Minister Bowen's uh, addressed to the press club, included the export of critical minerals, batteries and components. So this is good news for Australian companies across the value chain. And Jeremy, you have mentioned vanadium a couple of times. Um, and I'm hoping that perhaps you can explain in layman's terms, the broader picture here um, about batteries and why vanadium is sometimes referred to as the new lithium. What does this mean for the global energy storage market and carbon commitments?
2: No problems. Yeah, look, lithium-ion batteries, the name in itself is a, is a little bit of a misnomer because it's got all sorts of other ingredients, you know, cobalt, nickel, manganese and lithium is just a part of that. But so vanadium in layman's terms and just as well because I am the layman is, is another ingredient for energy storage. Different type of battery, you know, predominantly for industrial Grid-scale batteries, for the most part, vanadium redox batteries, and they're really coming into prominence. And because there's such a push for renewables in Europe and here, that intermittent energy really needs to be stored in order for it to be, you know, competitive. And as a result, you're seeing a lot more vanadium-driven batteries. Uh, you know, it's not just the, the big ones. So the grid-scale batteries can't be transported they're sea container size but you're also seeing a lot of research and development going into using vanadium in lithium chemistries both on the anode and the cathode side so you know different varieties of batteries for different purposes are pretty critical and you know in that mix with everyone thinks of lithium ion you've got vanadium as a key critical mineral as well so we're working on that as to are a lot of a lot of different people
0: So Australia is pretty well positioned, Western Australia in particular in this regard, um, given, you know, for for most of, if not all of the materials that you mentioned, Jeremy, we do have um, resources and reserves domestically. So very exciting times. Um, Thanks, Jeremy and Anel, for taking the time to come on the pod today um, and share with us a little bit more about the energy landscape, as well as what Neo Metals is focusing on, Um, we appreciate your insights and approach. We usually close out each of our episodes with an interesting fact from the world of ESG. Now, this one is for the stats nerds, but who doesn't love a statistic? The results of the 2021 census are in. The Census is Australia's biggest survey and it attempts to question every household across the country to create a big data snapshot every five years. For 2021, it involved some 25 million plus people, um, including me. Generationally, baby boomers and millennials now count for 21.5% of the population, which makes a Gen Xer like me continue to feel a little stuck in the middle. Gen Z now counts for 18% of the population. And interestingly, 30% of Indigenous Australians belong to Gen Z, signifying a growing First Nations population. So the 2021 census data is revealing a shift in First Nations demographics. On the other end of the spectrum, there's also a growing population of Indigenous people aged over 65%. So more than 150% increase on the 2016 census data. Since 2016, there has also been a 25% increase in the number of Australians who identify as Aboriginal and or Torres Strait Islander with 812,728 people or 3.2% of the population completing that part of the census form. So really tremendous to see the the change in the data set, because as we all know, information is power. And hopefully the data from the 2021 census can contribute across a range of areas, such as health, health outcomes for First Nations people, as well as representation where decisions are being made. On this note, I would encourage you to have a listen to our recent episode of the pod um, recorded especially for NAIDOC week. It's a discussion about the Uluru Statement of the Heart with Gemma McKinnon and Kashaya Delaney, um, two of my First Nations colleagues here at Herbert Smith Three Hills. Please listen in to learn a little bit more about the importance of voice and the work that's being done and will be done in this space. But thanks for listening and I look forward to you joining us next time.
2: In the spirit of reconciliation, Herbert Smith Free Hills acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respect to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today.